You're listening to TIP. And then the last thing is, is that just learning never stops. I mean, I've been trained jujitsu for 10 years, which isn't even that long, but I still learn new things like literally every single time I step on the mats. And I think in investing, it's the same thing. I mean, look at Charlie Munger. You know, he was still learning and he was 99 years old and one of the most brilliant people I think on earth. It just goes to show you that you can never know everything and you should always be trying to improve because there's always something out there to help you become a little bit better each and every day. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I got to sit down with my co-host Kyle Grieve to talk about his transformation into a bona fide, fully convicted value investor. We dive into his early investing mistakes, the biggest lessons from his guests on millennial investing, how he mitigates risk and what his research process is like, what both fatherhood and Brazilian jiu-jitsu have taught him about investing, and so much more. Kyle is a value investor, author, and manager of his family portfolio. He took up stock investing while his main job was working as a smart home integrator and network specialist. Now, Kyle is living his dream of learning how to invest and helping to educate other investors who are a few years behind him experience-wise as co-host of both Millennial Investing and We Study Billionaires. He is also an integral part of the TIP Mastermind community. Kyle's love of learning and investing is evident in this episode. This was a blast for me as he dropped a wealth of knowledge and resources for us to explore for anyone looking to take their investing to the next level. And so, without further delay, let's dive into this week's episode with Kyle Grieve. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your hosts, Patrick Donnelly... Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me today is my co-host, Kyle Grieve. Kyle, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I'm really happy to talk. We've been talking a little bit beforehand, the interview. I've been having a great time with you. So I'm really looking forward to our interview. You are moving on to doing some episodes on We Study Billionaires. So I wanted to give our listeners a chance to get to know you better, learn how you developed your investing philosophy, just get to know you better as a person. So I just want to just kind of dive right in. And I wanted to talk about like your early years and I wanted to hear your journey into value investing and just how you got turned on, how the light bulb for value investing clicked for you. I think basically it started with crypto in 2017. Even though I had nothing to do with value investing, it was pure speculating, but I made every mistake that you could possibly make. I, you know, I shorted, I looked at charts all day. I didn't spend as much time as I needed learning what I was buying. And I made so many mistakes and that was an expensive lesson. And so that was back in 2017, 2018. And my experience was so bad back then that essentially I just swore off investing. And then 2020 rolled around and COVID happened. And I figured, well, you know what? Prices are crashing. This might be a good opportunity to buy some price, well-priced assets. And I was brand new to investing still though back then. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And luckily I did find some resources on YouTube and Twitter or X that kind of led me down the value investing hole. So I was really lucky that I, I got led back down that way because I could have easily just kind of jumped back into what I was doing before and just trading and you know using leverage and doing silly things like that. So when 2020 happened, just like you did, we had you know lots of time on our hands. And I spent a lot of that time studying investing studying all the usual suspects, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, 
and reading and reading and reading and, and really going down the rabbit hole of value investing. And I found out I loved it. So that's kind of how I got into it. It was just kind of a uh, luck that I figured it out that during COVID, there was really well-priced uh, assets. And you know, a few of my first investments were still not very good ones, but luckily I got rid of them and I moved on from there. And I think I'm a lot much better investor today because of it. Yeah. I think our trading mistakes or investing mistakes are the biggest lessons to learn from. And I had the same experience in 2017, trading altcoins, whatever, and just getting totally burnt, but good lessons to be learned. You mentioned some of the books. You mentioned Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, obviously. What were some of the investing books that made the biggest impact on you? Like I see the poor Charlie's almanac behind you. Were there, and I see a ton of investing books actually behind you that, you know, come to mind. What were some of the biggest ones though that made a huge impact on you that really has have influenced how you think about investing? Yeah. So there's tons and tons of books, but I think for what have really impacted me from the start to where I am now, there's kind of like three big ones. One, probably not many people talk about, and that's Invested by Phil and Danielle Town. So that was kind of my first book that really did a really, really good job of showing what value investing is, You know, buying underpriced assets, understanding moats. And the way it's written is just, it's really simple. And I really, really enjoyed reading that. And I've read it multiple times and gone through it. And I still use many of the principles from that book in the way I invest today. That probably my number one is the most important thing by Howard Marks, which to me is, it doesn't really get any better if you want to understand risk. And the whole book is really good. But if you just read the few chapters he has on risk, I mean, it's something that I think should be done every year. And I do read the book every year and it does a really good job of keeping you grounded and making sure that, you know, just because you're doing really well in the market and, you know, everything's going up, that's great, but you need to be careful. And so I think reading that book does a really good job of telling you why you need to be careful, how you need to be careful. And it's just a really good reminder. And then the third one is one that everyone knows, which is the intelligent investor. And that one is based purely off chapters eight and 20 which I reread on a very regular basis. And you know some of the key concepts from just those two chapters are margin of safety, the importance of quality, the Mr. Market analogy, the business owner's mindset, and investing for speculation. So I think that book does an incredible job of explaining why all those things are so important. And all of those points are how I still invest today. Yeah, those are three good ones. The Howard Marks one for sure is one of my favorites as well. You're in Vancouver and I wanted to ask you, like if you were sitting on a, on a flight from Vancouver flying to New York, aside from Buffett and some of these other guys, and you had to sit next to a specific value investor, I don't know what the flight is, five hours or whatever, who would you love to sit next to? I'll skip out on the obvious ones. And there's, so there's probably two people. Number one would be Monish Pabrai and number two would be Lilu, and they're both friends. So it would be cool to be sandwiched in between the two of them. But I think Monish Pabrai is outside of Buffett and Munger have probably taught me the most. I mean, he has so much content out there on YouTube and you know, you can just, you can spend days listening to all of his interviews that he's done and, and get an incredible education. And the thing I really like about Monish is that he adapts, you know, he's had periods where it's all qualities, had periods where it's all value. And, you know, now he's kind of back to that quality mindset, but he does a really good job of adapting. He does a really good job of learning. He does a good job of, you know, saying where, when he's wrong. And these are all attributes that I think are, are really important and make you a better person and a better investor over a long period of time. So yeah, I guess I would probably say Monish Pabrai. Hopefully I'll get to interview him at some point. That would be amazing. He's got, you mentioned the content that he has on YouTube. He's got some lectures 
that he does, I think at least once a year with students at Boston College that are just outstanding. I mean, he's a super entertaining speaker, very dynamic, charismatic guy. For our listeners that aren't familiar with him, Monish Pabrai is his name. And he was running like a, he was like a computer consultant, basically running his own company and was in an airport, I think, and picked up One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch and whatever, the light bulb, you know, went off and he wrote a letter. I believe you tell me, I, I may be wrong, but didn't he write to Buffett and structured his own partnership exactly like he's really into cloning, right? And so I think he's, he just cloned Buffett and how he and uh, Charlie Munger invest and how they structured their own partnership. Yeah. As far as I know, he wrote Buffett first, I think asking to work for him for free. And then yes, I believe he structured his fund in the exact same way as the original Buffett partnerships. And speaking of videos, so obviously there's so many good ones, but there's one that I think you you have to listen to, which is the the one on Coca-Cola. His knowledge of Coca-Cola is crazy. That's Monish Pabrai. And if you just listen to that, you'll get such a good understanding of the Coca-Cola brand, the business and its competitive advantages. And it's incredibly well done. Yeah. All of these guys are just like perpetual learners. They continually read, you know, kind of like you, you've got the bookshelves in the back. Monish has got like thousands of books that he's read, you know, and he's, these guys just are like massive learners, which I really admire about them. You mentioned Lee Lu too. He was in the Tiananmen Square. Like he was a student organizer or protester during, in China during the Tiananmen Square incident or whatever you want to call it. Came to the United States. I think he got three degrees at Columbia University, law degree and MBA. And I forget what else, but he, he did it like, I mean, he's massively intelligent. Tell me why you like Lee Lu, like a few little things about him that you like. Yeah. So the things I like about Lee Lu is that, like you said, I mean, his backstory is just unprecedented. I mean, I can't, there's no one in, in the investing world that I know of with that has the same backstory. It's just incredible. And not only did he get those three degrees, but I don't even think he spoke English when he came here. So it's just, it's incredible. And so the reason I like him so much is just... Basically, he's kind of stuck to being a, a really quality investor, but I really enjoyed learning his story, especially in university, how he essentially just utilized his student loan float to start off and, and how well he did. And he only has a few lectures on on YouTube, but I mean, whew, man, they are really, really good. And you know, it's the same kind of thing with reading Howard Mark's book. You can probably listen to his lectures on a yearly basis and you, you'll go get smarter and smarter every single time you listen to it. So yeah, I really like his breakdowns. I like how he simplifies things. I like how he just thinks about investing. And I really enjoyed in his one, I think he had one with um, Bruce Greenwald, where he talked about Timberland shoes and all the due diligence he did with just learning about the company. And it's just, man, like that would be hard to do in real life unless you had you know the resources to do, but it just goes to show you how much work some of these investors do. And how in-depth you really need to understand a business in order to really take advantage of owning it. Yeah, that lecture that he did in Bruce Greenwald's class at Columbia is a masterclass on investing. And he's actually really funny. Like he almost rips the students for, he'll ask them questions like, you know, as a professor almost, and they don't know the answers or they're just kind of like, you know, and he, he just, but it, it is an incredible lecture that he gave. And like you said, there's a couple of them on there that are definitely worth watching. Those are two of my favorites too, Monish and uh, Lee Lu. So I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit. You've joined TIP. You've become a podcast host. I want to just hear what your experience has been like becoming a podcast host. Were you into podcasts like prior to joining TIP? 
were you was like hosting something that you had wanted to do or you had imagined doing or just talk to me a little bit about joining and becoming a host yeah it's been a really cool journey i mean i listened to podcasts a lot because you know they're just such a good way of learning things and uh, i think the first podcast list do again were probably crypto related podcasts and then when I, once i started getting interested in investing i listened to a lot of investing related podcasts but I never really thought of myself getting into the podcast game. So I originally started writing about investing because I wanted to learn more about it. And I think the best way to learn something is to try to you know, teach it to others. And so that's kind of what my focus was on, was on writing and, and improving my writing. And I never thought about taking the podcast route. Just It, it just didn't really enter my mind. But you know, podcasting, it, it's really just another vehicle to you know, voice your thoughts to your audience. It's, it's not that dissimilar from writing. It's just, you know, obviously you're talking to in a, in a camera rather than writing down. And it, so even before I joined TIP, I really loved, we study billionaires and richer, wiser, happier. There were so many good learning lessons from all of those. And yeah, I just kind of got lucky with getting picked up by TIP and it just worked out that I was the right fit for them and they're the right fit for me. And so far it's been an incredible experience and I'm really, really enjoying just improving at podcasting and understanding how to be good at it and getting better at interviewing people. And the research process of podcasting is probably my favorite because you know I, I get to just look back on my bookshelf and be like, I love that book. Let's see if I can talk to that author. And a lot of times they say yes. And it's incredible because I can, you know, read their books that have already taught me so much. And if there's maybe something, a couple of questions I have, then I can pose them to the the author and I often get incredible answers. So I feel very, very lucky to be part of TIP and to have this job. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, you're obviously a learner and it's like we get paid to learn every day and talk to super interesting people that you know, if you had to pay for their time, you know, it would be pretty costly. But yeah, it's a super fortunate position we're in. You mentioned the writing. Where were you doing that? Was that on Twitter or talk to me a little bit about the writing process and are you continuing to do that? I know you've got a big Twitter following. Yeah. So I initially wanted to start a blog. So I started one on Wix and uh, it didn't really go anywhere. But I remember one day I actually wrote this one article about Monish Pabrai. It was when he released his video about spawners. And so I wrote a summary about it. I shared it on Twitter and he shared it. And I got like a, I like quadrupled my subscribers on Wix. So that was kind of my first introduction to seeing how, you know, a social network can really, you know, drive growth of your audience. And after that, I moved to send it. I'm moving to Substack just because I, I just think the, the platform's way better. And so, yeah, I basically wrote on Substack and I did it once a week, every week for a little over a year before I was picked up by TIP. And then I, during that same time, I was also writing on Twitter quite often, you know, at least basically two or three times a day. So I would use both Substack and Twitter to kind of improve my writing and also to use data to figure out what I wanted to write about. So that was a really cool experience. And now, so my Substack had to shut down when I joined TIP, but I still write for our investing community pretty often. So I'm, you know, doing the same kind of things, trying to find interesting ideas and interesting topics to talk about and, and writing for the TIP community. And then also with writing, I'm still on, on X all the time, writing stuff and just sharing my ideas and thoughts. So yeah, writing is definitely a big part of, of what I'm doing still, even though I'm, you know, known as a podcaster now, I guess. Yeah, I've followed you probably before you joined TIP. You had some really great stuff. Same with Clay. Like I followed Clay before he joined TIP. So it's just kind of interesting. It's like like attracts like in, in a lot of ways. So uh, you mentioned spawners and Manish Pabrai's idea of spawners. Can you explain that a little bit for our listeners that aren't familiar with that idea? Absolutely. Yeah. So 
Monish came up with this spawner framework and it's basically specific businesses that can create new businesses. So, you know, he gives tons and tons of examples, you know, in China, there's Tencent and Alibaba that have multiple different segments in the US, things that everyone's going to be familiar with are things like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, you know, these, these are businesses that are, it's kind of like a conglomerate. So, you know, it's obviously it has its core business and then it spawns off other smaller businesses. And so if you look at Amazon, you know, it's going to spawn off other smaller businesses that don't end up being anything. Like if, you know, Amazon had a phone for a while, the Amazon Fire phone, and uh, that completely fizzled out. So it tried to spawn that out. It, you know, it's, it's attempting to try, you know, innovate and use interesting new ideas. And a lot of them fail, but some of them end up being big winners. So, you know, Amazon Web Services is a, is a great, it's probably the best example. You know, I don't think they probably had any idea that it would turn out to what it is today, but yeah. So that's kind of what a spawner is. It's a business that, you know, has its core concepts and there's a multiple different abilities and ways to spawn, whether that's through acquisition or through incubating things on your own. But yeah, so spawners, they have a lot of value, but I think the thing that I've kind of learned about spawners is that they do have a lot of value, but they can also be very difficult for the market to understand. And so like for instance, Alibaba, you know, if you look at the sum of the parts and I used to be an owner of it, I'm, I'm not anymore, but if you look at the sum of the parts, it's clearly an undervalued business, but it just seems to be really hard for the market to see the same thing. And that's why the valuation just doesn't seem to be moving. So while I, I really think the spawner framework is interesting and it's something I've used in the past and I'll continue looking at it in the future, it's, it's not something that I, I think is, you know, necessary or isn't really a core tenet of my investing philosophy, but it's, it's definitely very interesting to research. And I think it's, uh, it's definitely a video worth watching his spawner framework. You've had some great guests on millennial investing already. I wanted to hear about some of your favorites so far and some of the biggest takeaways that you've learned from some of these guests. I've had tons of great guests. And so I picked out a couple of them. So Lawrence Cunningham was just an incredible guest. I think one of the biggest takeaways I got from him was just the power of trust and how it can impact a business. So we spoke a lot about how Berkshire uses it. He, so he wrote a book called Margin of Trust, which is all about Berkshire Hathaway and basically how Warren Buffett has created this culture of trust and how he relies on it basically to run the entire business. So it's definitely um, not something I think that's used by a lot of businesses, but it is used by some businesses and, and the businesses that seem to be doing it seem to be creating a lot of shareholder value. So, you know, obviously Berkshire is a great example, but if you look at some of the other serial acquirers and sorry, I'm just going to kind of go right into Chris Mayer because Chris Mayer and I talked about serial acquirers. And, and so one of the cool takeaways from him was just the power of decentralization. And so I think decentralization and trust are basically embedded into one idea because in order to decentralize, you have to entrust other people or other organizations to do the right thing. So, a couple of good examples would be like Constellation Software is a great example. So, you know, it's this giant machine that just produces cash continuously and it's seemingly ridiculous high rates and everyone thinks it's going to slow down and it just doesn't slow down. And it's a decentralized business. So, you know, everyone knows what they need to do and they're all incentivized to do it. Their CEO, Robert Leonard, he can take his hands off and, and not end up having to do very much work. And the machine just keeps running because of how well it's run up and because he's fostered this decentralized system that relies on trust. And then another guest I had, he just blew my mind, was Robert Hagstrom, who's written a ton of books. 
And um, there are tons and tons of takeaways from talking with him, but one I really liked with him. So I, I, he worked with Bill Miller for a while and I wanted to learn, you know, what were some of your biggest lessons you took away from Bill Miller? And so he discussed this one that he calls, he didn't really have a name for it, but essentially what it was, was when you find a business, you need to find ways to describe it. So he said, Bill Miller would give them this lesson where, okay, you find a business, tell me all the different ways you can describe it. And the reason that was so important was because you know, you can look at one business and describe it in many different ways, but there's only going to be one way that's the most accurate. And if you can figure out what that way is, the market might not see it in the exact same way. And that means that you can unlock tons and tons of great opportunities. So I really, really like that mental model. I haven't quite implemented it too much yet myself, but it's something I definitely want to do. And I think if anything, it's just a really interesting mental exercise. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You had mentioned Constellation Software. Wasn't that how you and Clay first got connected with each other? He had done maybe a podcast on Constellation Software and really went in depth into the company and Talk to me a little bit about that, how you and Clay got connected over Constellation Software and your love for the company. 
Yeah, he did that really good podcast about Constellation Software and Robert Leonard. And I was able to just share his work. He he reached out and asked me to have a listen to it and see what I thought about it. And I shared his work. And I write about Constellation because I love the business and I also own one of the spinoff companies. And so yeah, basically that definitely when you have someone else who who loves a stock just like you do, it, it's easy to become good friends. And so I think that definitely contributed to uh you know, strengthening our relationship and him understanding that I have a appreciation for high quality businesses. So through these interviews that you've done on the podcast, how has your time at TIP changed your investing philosophy or maybe not? You know, have you kind of stuck to your guns on how you think about value investing or has listening to some of these people and, and really having them share their wisdom changed how you invest? Yeah. So I definitely... I spend a lot of time on my own investing philosophy, but I've, I've definitely made some changes. And, you know, one of the bigger ones has just been looking at smaller and smaller businesses. So even before the podcast, I was already interested in very small businesses. And, you know, if you read Chris Mayer's Hunter Bagger books and, and other look at other studies of Hunter Baggers, it's littered with small businesses. So that always was really interesting to me. And then when I spoke with Paul Andriola, he was my first actual guest ever on the podcast. It really, really opened my mind to the possibilities out there and the mispricings and inefficiencies in, in these smaller markets. So I've, I've spent a lot of time since August looking at nano and, and micro caps. And, and so that's kind of, ch- that's changed my investing philosophy a little bit, but overall, I mean, I'm still looking for high quality businesses that I can hopefully hold for a really long period of time. And one thing that I learned from actually being part of uh, the TIP investment community, we, when we had Gautam Bade on, he talked about how Obviously, holding on to a business for a long period of time forever is the holy grail. But in reality, it's really, really hard to do, even if that's what your your intent is, is to find businesses that you can hold. So he said that, you know, he kind of uses this two to three year timestamp and then reassesses. And so I felt that makes a lot of sense to me because a lot of the businesses that I bought, you know, even a year later, and these are big cap companies, things change rapidly. And you can't really just hold on to your previous hypothesis if the facts are showing you that you were wrong. So I really think I've kind of tightened my outlook to try to, f- to find businesses that are going to do really well in the next few years, but also have that optionality to do really well as well in long, long time into the future. And then it's really sped up my growth as well, especially with sharing ideas. So like you mentioned previously, I, I like writing on X and I've got a, a decent sized audience and I can't tell you how many people just reach out to me and, you know, tell me interesting ideas or, you know, I'll, I'll ask a thread in a Twitter question. I'll just say, Hey, you know, what's name one business that you think is going to do really well over the next year or whatever. And I'll get like a hundred answers. And it's really cool because I can go through those and, and try to find uh, a couple interesting names or I'll get people in my direct messages messaging me or through the TIP investment community. Now I got a ton of people who have tons and tons of really interesting names and I can also reach out to and, and talk to in, in detail. So, you know, if you really want to get a good influx of names, that that's a really good way is to just be social because people will share them for you. But yeah, so I think the TIP has definitely expedited my learning process because like you said, you know, we're basically paid to learn. So I learn a lot and I'm just kind of refining, I think, my current process even more. So you had mentioned the TIP mastermind community. I'm not part of it, you know, not necessarily a stock guy. I've got some stocks and I that actually was my first love was stock investing. But tell me a little bit about the mastermind community, what that entails, what it looks like, what you guys are up to there. Yeah. So the mastermind community has been 
it's been awesome. I, it's, it's probably my favorite part of the job actually, because it's obviously way smaller than, than Twitter or X we're at, uh, around say 90 people, but the quality is, is super, super high. I mean, it, it's all people who love investing and care a lot about it and, and spend a lot of time, you know, not only investing, but also learning and, and becoming better at investing and just, you know, learning in all the aspects of life. And, and we have a crazy amount of really successful business people on there as well. So it's been a really cool way to network with other people who are really interested in investing, really interested in learning, really interested just in business and, and learning from each other, sharing ideas, sharing strategies, you know, bringing on amazing guests like Gotham Bade, Chris Mayer, Tobias Carlisle, and, and peppering them with questions. And it's been really good. I definitely underestimated how impactful it would be. I had no idea, but it's been a really, really cool part of my investing journey. And I've met a lot of really interesting people and made a lot of friends. And we had a, an event in New York that was awesome. It was really fun to get to socialize with these people in person. We're going to do another one in Omaha for Berkshire. And yeah, so that's a little bit about the community and it's it's still growing at a nice pace. And we're, uh, we're continuing to keep the quality really high and keep the, the group nice and small so that uh, you know the members can get to know each other really, really well. So how does it work? Like, what's the cost of it? How often do you guys meet? Are you doing Zoom calls? What does, if I join the community, what what do I get from it? Yeah, so right now, I believe we're charging 197 per month, or I think it's 1,197 bucks for a year. And basically, so for that, you you basically get access to the community. That means you get you know, access to me, Clay and Stig a lot of the time. We do weekly videos, sometimes more than one weekly. And that's no matter where you are, you get access to that. So it's, you know, on Zoom and they're all replayed. So if you miss it, you can watch it whenever you want. We're trying to get basically a, a cool guest every month. So like I mentioned, we've had Gotham Bade, Chris Mayer, Tobias Carlisle, Paul Andriola. We got Ian Castle coming in January. So tons of really interesting investors who are doing things at a really high level and you get inside access to, you know, you're not going to find really anywhere else. And then we do things like share ideas with the community, whether that's sharing stock pitches, sharing strategies. There's a huge element of learning. So we have a whole like book club that we talk about a new book every month and that's either hosted by Claire or me. So we've done Joys of Compounding. We did the Nick Sleep Letters. We just did the book that's going to be my first episode on We Study Billionaires, which is uh, what I learned about investing from Darwin. And then, yeah, and then people will just write about tons and tons of different learnings that they've gotten from different books. So it's really a, a place to learn with other like-minded people. And kind of the reason I like it so much is that it's hard to find people who are are as enthusiastic about investing as I am in my day-to-day life. I mean, most people aren't interested in it and that's just the way it is and that's okay. But, you know, it's nice to have an outlet to be able to share your thoughts about investing with other people. And, you know, yeah, you can go on Twitter and, and do it for free and, and that's great. But, you know, the, the experience isn't that good and the quality on Twitter is pretty hit or miss. So, you know, we, we do a really good job of trying to maintain the quality of, of our members and also just fostering relationships. So we have tons and tons of people who have sold their businesses or are retired and managing their own money and and people who have really, really good insights. So, you know, like for instance, I was researching this business, Hammond Power Supply. And so they're on the electrical grid and I wanted to learn more. And I just threw the idea out there. And one of the people mentioned that he worked for one of their competitors. So I hopped on a call with them and grilled them with a whole bunch of questions. And it was really cool to get that insider information because that's information I, you know, there's no chance I would have gotten that if I wasn't part of the community. So there's all sorts of people with really diverse backgrounds. There's also professional investors in there as well. So it's pretty cool to be able to get a a professional view and see what the pros are doing and how they think as well. So yeah, that's kind of what you get. And and so far people have found a lot of value in, in the community. 
Yeah, that's super cool. And there is something to be said, like you mentioned about clay and you guys have this shared, you become like kindred spirits over a stock. And it's funny how that happens. You know, it's like, oh, you think like me too. And you know, it's just, it's definitely an interesting thing that happens with people. I wanted to talk a little bit about investing love stories. Like I want to hear about like in your portfolio right now, what's one investment right now that you're super fond of and why it holds a a special place in your heart? Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, a good investing is kind of like being a robot, right? I mean, we're supposed to be unemotional, but you know, the fact is, is that a little bit of emotion is, I think is okay. As long as you don't allow it to consume you. So for me, the oldest holding I have in my portfolio is Aritzia. So it's a business that uh, most people aren't familiar with, but essentially it's a retail brand for mainly for females. And it's actually based out of Vancouver, where, where I'm from. So part of the reason I love it so much is that uh, it's a business that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with and not many other people are because it started in Vancouver. So I, back when I was in my early 20s, I used to see girls wearing their stuff all the time and I had no idea what it was. But I'm like, man, like I've seen like five girls wearing that exact same thing in the last week. And then, you know, I'd, I'd go and ask my girlfriend or whatever, what it was. And she would say, oh, that's Aritzia. And, you know, yeah, everyone has it. It's Aritzia. And so I, I started understanding the strength of the brand, at least in Vancouver then, because everyone was wearing it. Everyone loved it. It looked good. The quality was good. And so I feel that kind of gave me some unique insight into the strength of the brand. That's kind of hard to fathom, especially if you're a guy, because you're not going to be wearing their stuff. So that's kind of a pet stock I would consider. And, and you know, it's a stock that uh, lately hasn't been doing very well, but I feel the fundamentals will shine through and they're going through some short-term issues right now. And the stock price has been punished, but it's one that I, I'm hoping I can hold for a long period of time and continues to perform really, really well. You and Clay had covered a Polish company and I wanted to hear more about that. Like, how did you get turned on to that, that company? I forget the name of it. Dino Polska. Dino Polska. Yeah. So tell me about that. Like, is that part of your portfolio? Do you look internationally at companies? Yeah. So that is part of my portfolio. I do look internationally. I actually, so I'm based in Canada, but I actually don't own any U.S. stocks currently. I, I have in the past. And that has nothing to do with the U.S. market. I think the U.S. market is the best in the world. That's just the, kind of the way it's played out. And also the U.S. market, given the fact that it is the best market in the world, is also the most known market in the world, which often means that valuations are a lot higher in it. But Dino is a business I completely found from Chris Mayer. Chris Mayer and I DM back and forth. We share a lot of stocks in common and he's helped me with uh, you know, just finding ideas. So you know, I hopped on there one time, asked him, hey, are there any interesting businesses I should look at? And he listed a couple and one was Dino Polska. When I looked at Dino Polska, I was absolutely blown away. I mean, the business is incredible and you know, it's kind of the, one of these typical Chris Mayer businesses where you know, it, it's just growing at a really steady rate, has a, a good competitive advantage. The only problem is that it's definitely not cheap. And, you know, even though it's in Poland, which is a market most people don't really think about, there's actually quite a few pretty high quality businesses in Poland. And Dino Polska is one of them. And it had its time where it, it got crushed a little bit. And so you could have picked it up at, a, at really nice prices. But yeah, so international investing, I, I love it. I mean, you know, it's, it can be a little bit harder to understand things just given different cultures, different geographies, different regulations. But I own a number of businesses that aren't based in North America, and I don't see that stopping anytime soon. And thing that's cool about international is that there are just, there's a lot of times there's less eyes on them. And, you know, with the popularity of X and everything, it's hard to find 
something that no one knows about. But if you can find something that very few people know about, there's a lot of advantages in that. So I really like international businesses and especially like international businesses that are on the smaller side or less well-known. I wanted to touch on Chris Mayer and the whole idea of a hundred bagger. What are some of the metrics, the concepts that he's looking at to figure out if a company becomes a hundred bagger or not? Yeah. So he has a couple things. So one of my biggest takeaways from that book was just simply his twin engines concept, which essentially is if you want to look at a hundred bagger, one really good way of doing it is to find number one, a cheap entry multiple. So, you know, if you buy something for a price to earnings of five and it grows to a price to earnings ratio of 20, it four X's right then and there without any changing in its earnings. But if you can change the earnings, if the earnings also increase, well, you can get these businesses where, you know, the earnings maybe doubles or triples, but when you multiply that also by the earnings, the change in the, the multiple that you pay for it, you get just magic and you can make a lot, a lot of money. So that was one concept. And then one thing that he also made very, very clear in the book is the importance of returns on equity. So the reason that's so important is that basically if you have a business that can earn 20% returns on equity and let's say has no debt and reinvests all of its profits back into the business, it should theoretically grow at 20% forever. I mean, it's pretty impossible to have 20% ROE forever, but you know, there's some businesses that have been doing it for a really long period of time. So if you could find a business that has a really good return on equity, which is basically just net income over shareholders equity, and then pair that with the ability to reinvest in itself, you can find really, really high quality businesses that can continue compounding their, their business. And that's kind of the holy grail. If, if you can find that, it's hard to find. It's, it's really hard to find because a lot of times you'll find these businesses that do have a high return on equity, but uh, they can't reinvest it in themselves. So they eventually they'll have to you know, they basically pay a dividend. And if they pay that dividend, it obviously it reduces the amount of money that they can put back into the business, which reduces the effects of compounding. I wanted to talk a little bit about how you construct your portfolio. I want to hear like how many stocks you typically hold in your portfolio. And then a little bit about risk management. You know, like there's that famous Warren Buffett saying about the first rule of investing is don't lose money. Second rule is don't forget rule number one. So I want to hear a little bit about how you mitigate risks when you construct your own portfolio and just how you size it. Yeah. So risk is huge. And I think that if you don't think about it very often, you're putting yourself at a massive disadvantage because investing is emotional. And if you let your emotions consume you, it's really easy to forget completely about risk. And that's why I think Howard Marks's book is so important. So for me, there's a couple of things I do to mitigate risks. Number one is I try not to buy things that are ridiculously priced. So, you know, sure, I'll buy something that looks expensive. You know, if the market's trading at a PE of 20 and I buy something at a PE of 30, then yeah, that's an expensive business. But certain businesses are so good and it's very small, but there are certain businesses that are so good that you can pay up for them and still get a really, really good return. But the key part there is being right about the business. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand the business, understand its competitive advantages, understand its total available market and understanding, you know, how much market share it can take in the future and its ability to maintain its profits and its ability to stave off competitors. So that's one way. And then the other way essentially is just through portfolio sizing. So I'm definitely more concentrated, but there's some people who take it to extremes like Charlie Munger. And I think Charlie Munger can do this because he was so brilliant. And I don't think I'm anywhere close to as brilliant as him. He had like four stocks in the Daily Journal, I think, something like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's super concentrated. And I, I try not to concentrate quite as much, but the way I look at it is I want to have as much of my money and my winning stocks as possible. I mean, that's kind of what everyone says they want, but in reality, what they do is they'll have a stock that's a winner and they basically shave off part of their winnings and then put those winnings into other stocks. But I just don't see it that way. In my opinion, if I have a stock that's doing really, really well, I don't want to stop it from doing really, really well. You know, Paul Andriola, when I had him on, he had a really good analogy. He said, you know, if you have Wayne Gretzky on your hockey team, if you're trying to win games, are you going to take them off the ice or are you going to put them on the ice as much as possible? And, you know, the answer is quite obvious. You're going to play your winners as much as possible. So I want as much exposure to my winners as much as possible. And so what that means is that, yes, I may have winners that where their levels of concentration are higher. Like, for instance, for me, my highest level concentration position is evolution AB, and that's around 20%. But I, I sleep fine with that because this business is incredible and it's uh, continuing to grow at high rates. And I, I don't think there's a chance for me to lose too much on it at this point in time. So I just leave it as is. So that's kind of my other other way I, I mitigate risk. And then another thing I, I like doing also is I think it has to do with how much intensity you use to research a business. So if you're in investing for the long period of time, your biggest risk is not understanding a business, which and, and that's what I'm in for is to invest for long periods. So if you can really try to focus on finding businesses that are simple and that you can honestly understand, and that's the hard part because you can tell yourself you understand something, but until you you lose a bunch of money and, and realize that there are a whole bunch of risks that you never accounted for, then that's when you can admit to yourself that you don't understand. So I've really been focusing on finding businesses that I can understand really well and that are really simple because another part of that simple versus complex equation is that Simple businesses are also easier for the market to understand. And if you have this super complex idea, if the market doesn't understand it now, there's a reasonably good chance that it's not going to understand it in five years from now. So you might, you know, you might get these businesses that are chronically underpriced. So that's why it's nice having just really simple ideas, simple businesses that hopefully carry lower risks and that the market can understand really easily. So I think doing those kinds of things has really helped me mitigate risk. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, 
savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. It's very Buffett-esque, you know, to stick with simple stuff. So I wanted to kind of go behind the scenes. Like when you are researching a potential investment, I want to hear a little more in depth about what your process is like. What are the things that when you're looking at a company, you say, boom, this is it. I'm definitely going to take a position in this company. Yeah. So it's definitely a long process and I kind of draw it out on purpose because I feel like rushing into a position is a horrible idea because you open yourself up to all sorts of risks and mistakes in the analytical process that you would make if you just kind of take your time. So my general process is uh, first I have to get the idea. So where do I get the idea? Like I, I mentioned, I get tons of ideas from X, from my direct messages, from the, the mastermind community. That's kind of a, my primary resource. So after that, I'll look at a business quantitatively. So what I'll do, I have my own kind of little system I like to use where I'll open up this uh, service called FinChat and I'll put the name in and I'll look at metrics like revenue growth, net income growth, operating cash flow growth free cash flow growth, returns on invested capital, and it's the returns on invested capital, conservative financing, what the insider ownership is. And I'm looking for specific benchmarks. And if the business doesn't meet the benchmarks on you know one or two, well, maybe I'll keep going. But if it doesn't meet it on you know 50%, well, it's just a pass. And I can do that in about less than five minutes. So it's really easy for me to kind of say no to, a, to an idea. But you know, a lot of times businesses will pass through that. And that's kind of where the, the real work starts to begin. So after that, I'll begin by just looking at the quarterly annual reports, reading them, reading Q&As. I might check out Seeking Alpha to see what other analysts say. And I know, you know, a lot of people say you shouldn't do that, but in my opinion, I'm looking at other analysts is just kind of a shortcut because while you may you may or may not agree or disagree with what they're saying, it can really open your eyes to maybe some of the risks that you're not looking at. And then also, you know, you can always reach out to them and grill them for questions on on the business if you don't understand it. And then after that, I'll start looking at competition. You know, a lot of times these businesses won't tell you who their competition is, but sometimes they do. And then sometimes you just need to figure it out yourself. It's usually not that difficult. You just look at what products they're selling and try to find other products that are similar and go from there. And then I'll compare numbers. So generally speaking, if if the business is past my first hurdle of being really good quantitatively, it usually means that 
it's got some sort of special sauce. So I want to see, you know, why it has a special sauce and I want to see it quantitatively compared to other businesses in the industry. So, cause a lot of times you, you might find a business that looks half decent and then you look at the industry and everything looks good. So in that case, well, you probably don't have any type of advantage. And yeah, and then I spend a lot of time looking at management. So things that really matter to me are how many shares do they own? Did they get the shares via options or did they buy them on the open market? How much percent of their net worth is in the business? How have they done with previous businesses they've worked at? How have they done on strategies that are currently in the business? You know, are they open to ask answering difficult questions or do they just kind of deflect or blame others for it? So yeah, that's kind of my investing process. And then, you know, other things I'll do is talk to other owners of the of the business. It's easy to search a ticker on X and reach out to someone and ask them a couple of questions. And oftentimes you can get really, really good answers. I've started talking to management a little bit now. It's definitely something I want to get better at. That can be really, really beneficial. Obviously, you have to take with what they say with a grain of salt because they're all promoters and they're good salesmen. But if you have the right questions, you can get some really, really interesting information that can help you with your decision making. And then after that, you know, this whole process, unfortunately, I don't have eight to 12 hours a day to, to take on it. So this can take, you know, weeks or months just for one idea. And then after that, I'll start evaluating the business. So a lot of people, myself included, I think make the mistake of valuing a business first. So they'll be like, oh, okay, this business is really cheap. Let's go ahead and buy it or whatever. But the problem with this is, well, you do that. You just skipped all the work I just talked about. And if you're intending to hold the business for a long period of time, all this work is what helps you identify risks and really understand the business. And I don't think you can really evaluate a business without understanding it. So, you know, because I am looking at higher quality businesses, a lot of the time, the valuations are just Unfortunately, they don't make sense. So I end up having to wait. But I think that this is a really, really good way of doing it. And so another thing also is that, you know, a lot of times you might not fully understand a business, say 90%, but I don't think you need to get up to that point to make to enter into position. So you can do, you know, you can make it a, you know, a smaller, make it, you know, one or 2% to start off with and then keep doing more and more research. You should still have a very, very good base of what you know. And then as you, understand the business better, develop conviction in the business, see that they're executing on things and you can start adding to the position size. You've mentioned Guadam Bade and one of his ideas is keeping a trading journal. Is that something that you that you do? Is that part of your toolbox? I want to kind of hear about your toolbox, like your tech toolbox. Talk to me about like, you obviously like to write. So I'm curious if you also journal about your investing mistakes and wins, things like that. Yeah. So back in probably... October, I did buy myself just a physical journal. And um, when I first started, I was doing it every day, but then I realized that my prompts or things that I was writing about were kind of repetitive. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of figure out how to word things and everything like that. So, but I, I still journal regularly. I just read Gautam Bade's book, which essentially are, it's a peek into his journal during this bear market in India from, I think it was 2017 till 2020. His second book, right? Yeah, his second book. It was really, really good. And it had some really interesting insights onto what he looks at. And, and I think for me, the strength of journaling is really understanding where my emotions are because I can identify where my emotions are and, and write it down and, and then go back and look back at other periods of time and see. And obviously, I, I don't have a big history. So this is going to be into the future where I'll look back, but I can go back and see where I'm going wrong. But I think it's also a good way to, to tell you yourself as a signal where your emotions are because you know, a lot of the mistakes we make are based on emotion. And if we can try to identify what those emotions are, then we can also try to hopefully minimize mistakes based off of those emotions. So 
yeah, a lot of the, some of the prompts that he wrote in his book were uh, very macro oriented. And while I, I think macro is, is definitely important. I, I don't really try to be too much of a macro guy personally. I, I'm really interested in just in specific businesses. So now what I'm doing is I'm trying to focus on prompts that ask me, you know, what businesses that I own are that I'm most bullish on? What am I least bullish on? What are developments that I'm paying attention to or KPIs I'm looking at? And then I'm also kind of not exactly investing related, but another thing I'm really been working on is trying to uh, be better at using multidisciplinary and thinking. So what I'm trying to do is use my journal. I write in it what mental model I want to learn for the next week. And then each day I try to apply that mental model to different areas of my life, whether that's investing, a business, family, parenting, relationships, just life in general. And, and so every day I'm trying to use one mental model on various things. And then, so I'm trying to basically make using thinking in different mental models a habit. And that's, it's been working really, really well for me. It's, it's a lot of work and it's upkeep, but it's been working well. And I think if I continue doing this for many, many years, I'll hopefully become a fraction as good as Charlie Munger was at it. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned mental models and you've got the book behind you. Is that where you're pulling the there's a chapter in there that's all about mental models. Is that where you're pulling the, when you're taking a look at mental models, is that what you're looking at? I get them from a variety of sources. So I think you're talking about Charlie Munger's, the psychological misjudgments. So yeah, I'll, uh, I've definitely gone through that multiple times. I probably need to keep going through that to really internalize each and every single one. But yes, that, so that's one source. Another source that I've been using a lot is actually the great mental models, which is a three-part series written by Farnham Street. It's really good. It does, you know, it has like 15 to 20 pages for a whole bunch of different models. Does a really good job of showing, you know, what kind of like the definition and then giving you kind of like a case study that could be completely far out there. They make sense. So I kind of use that as a guide and then I'll read about it, try to understand a little better. But I think the most important part is really internalizing it, thinking about it and using it because, you know, you can get this list of mental models, but if you don't actually use them on a regular basis, it doesn't really end up helping you very much. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about your personal life. You've become a father recently. I know you're a brown belt in jujitsu. So I wanted to talk a little bit about both of those. Like, first off, like how has fatherhood changed your investment philosophy? Yeah. So being a father has helped me a lot. I think, I think the most with efficiency. So, you know, a lot of the time I, I have now, I, I want to spend with my son. And before that, I, you know, I didn't have my son, so I'd spend it on other things such as whatever, investing or jujitsu. But uh, now that I want to spend more time with him, I really, really have to focus on my time efficiency and using it in as intelligent a way as possible. So I've gotten a lot better at saying no, especially with investing stuff. I mean, you might get a hundred ideas shot at you and maybe one of them is decent. And so I think it, it's really important to understand how to identify that one idea because you know you can waste a lot of time in investing. And if, if you don't have some sort of system to use your time more efficiently, then it's really easy to just to waste time. And so having my son has really, really taught me the importance of that because there's only so, so much time in the day and I want to spend a good portion of that with him. And then the other thing that he's taught me a lot about is compounding. And it's more compounding knowledge because every day it's like he learned something new and and you know I, i'm not going to be one of these parents who thinks his his kids a special snowflake I, I know most kids go through it but it doesn't really matter it's just the rate of learning that babies go through is just it's like it's like almost incomprehensible like 
just little things he does one day, he wasn't doing it a week ago. And it's just like, man, this kid is learning so much at such a fast pace. And so it really got me thinking, it's like, you know, just as humans, we learn so much at a young age and, and, you know, we'll never learn as much as probably my son's learning right now. But I think a lot of people kind of close themselves off to the learning process. Usually, you know, whether that's in their late teens or early twenties after they finish school and, you know, you kind of learn whatever you learn and that's it. And then you just live the rest of your life out. And, but it just goes to show like with my son, it's just like over, you know, a couple months period, it's just like, he's a whole new person. And if he can do that, while compounding all these different things that he's learning each and every day. Well, why can't adults do it? I mean, granted, it's going to be at a slower pace and that's completely expected, but it just really shows that the power of compounding works and it does have big results. And even though you might not see them on a day-to-day basis, you know, over a long period of time can make rapid, rapid changes in your knowledge. That's awesome. Yeah, those are good points. I think the other thing too with kids is like it totally lowers your time preference, right? Now you're thinking out, 20, 30 years, you know, rather than before when it's just you, it's your, your time preference is really high. I wanted to hear about jujitsu too. You're a brown belt. Talk to me about how you got into jujitsu. And like, I know there's got to be ways that you've applied what you're doing on the mat to investing. Yeah. So jujitsu has been a a huge part of my life for the last decade or so. So I absolutely love it. And, you know, jujitsu is cool because yeah, you obviously have your coach who teaches you, but just with the the blow up of internet, there's been a lot of really, really high level jujitsu players who share their coaching online through videos. So a lot of my time was just spent researching what other really good people were doing and then trying to apply those lessons to my own game. And so essentially I, I started thinking of jujitsu kind of as these small kind of games that you can play against your opponent. And it's really cool because you can get really good at one game of jujitsu and be, you know, reasonably new. You could maybe be like a white belt who's been training for a year or, or a blue belt or whatever, which is the next level up. And if you're really, really, really good at one game, you might even be able to beat someone who's a black belt because if they're playing your miniature game and they're not as good as you at it, you have a huge advantage. So that alone has taught me so much about investing. And that's because basically in jujitsu, you can find out what your strengths are and you can focus your entire game into amplifying what your strengths are while basically ignoring your weaknesses. And so in investing, it's similar. I mean, obviously there's weaknesses that you have to address, otherwise you're just going to get killed. So I, I broke down a couple of them in investing. So obviously know your strengths and you should amplify them. So what that kind of comes down to for me in investing is knowing what you know and what you don't know. So spend time researching businesses that you know and you can understand and that you might have an advantage of because other people won't have that same advantage. And that's really important because when you're not focusing on your strengths, you open yourself up to risk. And so like that brings up my second point, which is understand your weaknesses. So you obviously, there's some weaknesses that you need to address, but a lot of times you can just focus on, on what your strengths are and use your strengths to avoid your weaknesses. So in investing, I think that's, you know, you have to have a, a decent overall game, but if you know you have a weakness in whatever that is, a specific geography, maybe a specific industry, you know, it, it might just require the humility to admit that, okay, I don't understand that area. I'm just, I'm just not going to bother with it. I'll skip it. So, uh, I know that, uh, like Warren Buffett, he's always said that airline stocks are crap. And then he bought a bunch of them and, and he says he calls himself an aeroholic, which I found hilarious. So, you know, and it just goes to show you that there's, you know, there's industries that 
maybe no one understands, but you personally don't understand well, and you should just stay away from them and just focus on what your strengths are. Another thing that's really important is to do what is fun. So, you know, research, whether that's in, in jujitsu, I like doing, you know, moves and things that I find really enjoyable and fun and, and are athletic and other people might find them, they don't like them. So same thing in investing, you know, find ideas that you find interesting. Don't just find things that are a slog to get through. I mean, one of the easiest ways to, I think, to filter a business is if, if you read an annual report or you read about their products and you're just, you know, you're starting to fall asleep. Well, that's probably a good example that it's not something that belongs in your portfolio. And then the last thing is, is that just learning never stops. I mean, I've, I've been trained jujitsu for 10 years, which isn't even that long, but I still learn new things like literally every single time I step on the mats. And I think in investing, it's the same thing. I mean, look at Charlie Munger, you know, he was still learning and he was 99 years old and one of the most brilliant people I think on earth. And it just goes to show you that you can never know everything and you should always be trying to improve because there's always something out there to help you become a little bit better each and every day. This is a great place to put a pin in this interview. This has been really fun, Kyle. I really appreciate your time, your thoughts, your insights here. For our listeners that want to learn more about you, find out maybe about the Mastermind community, find you on Twitter, tell us some ways to get in touch. Yeah. So if you want to find me on Twitter, my handle is IrrationalMRKTS. Markets was taken. So it's IrrationalMRKTS. If you want to find out about podcasts, I have episodes already on Millennial Investing. So that's the investorspodcast.com slash millennial dash investing. And then I will be on the We Study Billionaires feed as well. And if you want to learn more about the Mastermind Group, we have a wait list and that's at theinvestors.com slash mastermind. And we have an intake about every quarter or so. So if you're interested, just hop on the wait list and me or Clay will reach out to you. And then as a teaser, your first We Study Billionaires episode is about... It's about a book. So it's going to be a solo episode. It's just going to be me talking about all the lessons I learned from what I learned about investing from Darwin by Pulak Prasad, which was probably one of my favorite books I read this year. I think you'll get a lot out of that one. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Kyle, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.